This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Dennis Berger. Dennis Berger is a contributing editor for the Soundstage Access website and also writes for Wirecutter and Cinelux and used to write for Home Theater Review, Home Entertainment, and Home Theater Magazines. And Brent currently writes for Soundstage, Wirecutter, Audio Express, and Jazz Times. He's also written for Home Theater and Home Entertainment Magazines. He was the editor of both at one time or another, wrote for Sound and Vision, Home Theater Review, and a lot of other publications. Now, this is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, and so for what we think is the first time ever, we're actually trying to make a podcast according to audiophile standards. So Dennis, since you're the technical master here, what is it we're doing? <laughs> well, uh, for one thing, we're recording in stereo. Um, I think, you know, the funny thing is we forgot to mention in the first episode that we were going to mix in stereo. And a lot of people were kind of surprised by that. A lot of people were also surprised that you and I were not in the same room. Um, we're absolutely not. I mean, we're both in L.A., but you're in Los Angeles and I'm in lower Alabama. Um, but uh, yeah, the first episode we recorded on Zoom and found some ways we thought we could improve it. So we are now recording locally and just using Zoom to sync up. And um, hopefully we're going to end up with some files that sound even better than the first episode. Yeah, so we're originating with 16-bit, 44 kilohertz wave files, mixing those together, and we're adding music done by me mm -hmm. that is mixed in stereo and is produced in... Uh, well, we're taking a 1644 file, and that's the original, and then we're mixing that in. So we're starting with high-quality you know, CD resolution files and then mixing into whatever codec the, the system that you're listening on decides to <laughs> use. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, we should say, if, if one of us sounds much louder than the other, it may be the fact that you're used to listening to podcasts with one earphone in. You can't do that with us. So No, sorry. We are not mono compatible. But <laughs> if you need mono, you need to probably listen to a less sophisticated podcast than ours. Yeah. So what are we talking about this week, Brent? So we are going to start with one of your articles that is on Soundstage Access, which is available at soundstageaccess.com, or you can just go to soundstage.com and access all the different uh, Soundstage articles. And the article is titled, The Most Dangerous Myth in Audio, whereas you're going to tell us the most horrifying destructive thing that's happening in the world of audio. I don't know if I'd have gone that far. Um, anyway, next up, we've got an article by our mutual friend, Jerry Del Caliano on Audioholics called How Art Can Teach the Stagnant World of Audio a Lesson About the Future. I, I can't wait. I'm sure I will learn a lot. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we're going to finish with a discussion about a YouTube video by Danny Ritchie of GR Research. And the YouTube video is titled, Calling Out the Reviewers, in mostly all caps, with an exclamation point. So it must be worthy of discussion. Yeah. So let's move on. Dennis, what is the most dangerous myth in audio? That was kind of a softball <laughs> intro, wasn't it? 
<laughs> that was kind of a softball intro. Um, you know, for the purposes of this article, you, you've always got to have a headline that grabs people. But um, at least I think I could make the case that one of the most dangerous myths in audio is this notion of golden ears. This silly notion that some people simply have access to hearing abilities that are beyond normal mortal men, you know, that you have to train yourself how to be a listener and that that, uh, you know, many of these audio reviewers just have access to superpowers that mortal men simply can't access. Um, so I mean, what's your argument with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> first off, I think it's dangerous because it's stupid, but I also think it's dangerous because, look, you know, we're, we're, we're having a problem in that our, our hobby has become a bunch of old dudes sitting around talking to each other in an echo chamber. And, yeah. and it, for, for any number of reasons, uh, you know, we're having trouble attracting the youngins. I think this, this, this myth of the golden ear might be one of the things that's really driving them away. I mean, when we make these stupid claims that things that people can't hear when we claim to be able to hear them, then anyone who's just claiming into this is going to go, well, I can't hear that, so I must not belong to this club, you know? Or they're going to get angry about it and, and write our entire hobby off as just, yeah. you know, a hoax. And that's a, Well, that's a good point. And so... So do you think it's is this myth dangerous to the industry or dangerous to audiophiles or dangerous to people who aren't audiophiles or who is it actually dangerous to? You know, I think it harms our industry probably more than anything because I think it makes it really, really hard to to bring in new initiates who aren't already sort of buying into this notion that there are these people who have special superpowers in terms of hearing. But who's to say they don't? How do you know they don't? <laughs> Well, you know, that's a good question. I don't think they do. Um, and I, I think I think probably the best evidence for that is that the people who claim that they do are the first to reject notions like blind testing. I mean, if you are so super confident in your, in your superhuman hearing abilities, then why are you scared of an ABX test, you know? And it's always the people who crow the loudest about how refined their hearing is that are the first to... to to trash double blind testing. Yeah. I mean, they don't have, this has always bothered me. I mean, they always say, trust your ears, but they don't trust their ears. They always have to have their eyes involved. And to me, if you're going to trust your ears, the first thing to get rid of is your knowledge of what you're hearing. Then you actually do trust your ears. Yeah. So you got a letter from a reader about this, didn't you? I did. I, I got a letter from Joe Pop and, um, What's fascinating about this is that it led me to another article, which I think we're going to dig into, but I'll just, I'll just read some of the email from Joe. Um, so he starts off with a headline in response to the most dangerous myth in audio. And then he goes on, but I just read Harry Pearson studied psychology at Duke University. And this is what allowed him to develop a philosophy about audio listening and reviewing. That was a game changer. That philosophy Harry's idea was that the human perceptive apparatus could be trained to objectively observe the distinctive performance characteristics of audio gear. Not only could it do this, it was also very good test equipment for that job. Um, and he goes on to link to this, this article from The Absolute Sound called Philosophical Notes, Secrets You Need to Know to Be an Audiophile. Part one, mm. which I guess means there's a part, part one. Yeah, there's Ooh. a part two coming. So there's, a, <laughs> so there's not forward to part two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So oh, you boy. need, apparently you need to know a lot of secrets before you can become an audiophile. So, mm. um, 
You read the article, right? I sent you a link. I did. I did read the article. You know, I, 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 the, the, I have a lot, so many problems with what's stated in this article. And uh, I, I will state right up front that I did not know Harry Pearson, but I met him a couple times and he was very nice to me. Um, and he didn't have to be. Because some people, some high-end audio writers are, don't dig me too much. So um, anyway, but he was very gracious and delightful. Um, and um, in fact, when I the first time he, he said, oh, Brent Butterworth. And then he says, you don't look like a monster to me. And I was kind of like, huh? And he says, oh, this other writer whose name I won't name because he'll probably try to sue me, said you were a monster. So uh, anyway, it's, it's just a delightful person. Anyway, so um, so... I think I don't think any scientist would argue that your ears are not good. You know, anyone with decent hearing, their ears are not good test equipment for the job. I mean, that's the whole point: is that we are trying to figure out what people can hear and what will make them happy when they listen to this stuff. So, mm -hmm. their ears are great test equipment for the job. However, in the the very next sentence, he says, this is a point of contention among audiophiles, but there has been quite a bit of research showing how capable the sensory brain system of humans is and how it often outperforms electronic instrumentation. And we see this, you know, we've been seeing this essentially the same statement for decades thrown out there. And, you know, this is this article is on the web. OK, mm -hmm. so you can do a thing called hyperlink that all the kids are doing now. <laughs> it's all I have been doing for 25 years, but I can say there's quite a bit of research showing that nobody who writes for the absolute sound has any idea what they're talking about. But unless I can point to that research, my statement is invalid. So it's like, stop saying, oh, there's quite a bit of research showing blah, 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 whatever contentions that confirm your, your existing biases. Well, fine. Link to the research site. If you don't cite your research, you're making it up. That's the rule. And mm -hmm. so that really upsets me right there. Is it the guy is just, you know, has he actually read any scientific research? I'm going to guess not. And, but this, this goes on and on. And, and it talks about how, you know, Harry asserted that we need a standard for using one's ears and that the standard is what he called the absolute sound, which is the sound of, real acoustical instruments in a real space and mm -hmm. that's great but any sort of critical thinker or anyone who knows anything about audio is going to immediately start to see what the problems are with that and this is a, a 50 years old contention and it's still being thrown out there i was about to say we should probably put in context for people who aren't familiar with pearson and the absolute sound we should this is the early 70s this is 1973 right so yeah you know, Harry and, and, and Gordon Holt, who founded Stereophile, you know, kind of were grappling with, like, how do we write about this? How do we describe this? How do we judge these products? And, you know, you and I could jump in and there are already standards. There's tons of scientific research. Even, even you know, as we were getting into this, there was a lot of research emerging and now there's just tons. So we have it kind of easy. And Harry and Gordon didn't. But this contention was made 50 years ago. And it's just, even 50 years ago, you can look at this and say, okay, there's a couple problems with this. First of all, the sound of live acoustic music played in a real space. Well, you're not comparing a system to a live musician. You're comparing it to your memory of a live musician, mm -hmm. which you're assuming is accurate. 
And I don't, I'm not aware of any study that's ever been done that shows acoustic memory is, is terribly accurate. And, um, I've seen quite a few that, that showed it was it, it, exactly the opposite. Sure. So. And to my point before, you know, if anyone wants, uh, you know, we could probably drop that into some... Do we have show notes on this thing? We do have show notes. Okay, good. We can drop something. I can find an AES paper on that easily because I know they exist. So we'll drop that into the show notes. We will... Uh, we're going to practice what we preach here. But there's so many other problems with it besides that, that your acoustic memory isn't that good. It's like, what does live acoustic music played in a real space sound like is that invariable well it depends on the characteristics of the space it depends on the instruments it depends on the people playing the instruments this is why we buy multiple recordings of a piece of music of the same piece of music played by different people on different instruments in different eras in different spaces okay they're all different that's not that's not a standard mm -hmm. and on top of that, how do you know how the instruments are supposed to sound? Yeah, I have a rough idea of what a cello sounds like because I've heard a bunch of them. I know what a saxophone sounds like, but I don't know exactly. And it's not a standard or a reference because I just don't know. I mean, what does a double bass sound like? I play double bass and the sound of a double bass changes not only with the sound of the bass itself, but the strings are like radically different. They sound really, really different. And orchestral players do not standardize on a certain set of strings. They use a bunch of different kinds of things. Sometimes they use different strings for the E and A and for the D and G, right? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, which is mind-blowing yeah. to a guitar player. Because a guitar player, you go buy some Ernie Balls and slap them on. They sound kind of like everything else. But with double bass, they sound radically different. And then there's the bow. The bow sounds different. And that's just double bass, which is the only orchestral instrument I can speak about with any authority, even though I <laughs> I can't play classical double bass except badly. But anyway, that's my point though, is that you don't really know what it sounds like. It's not a standard. And but we do have standards. And you know, we have standards like the the Harmon research that show you that, hey, this X percentage of people, I think it's 86% or something like that, will prefer speakers that are that have these characteristics. Okay, that's a standard. A standard is not like, oh, I think it's kind of like what I, this recording of so-and-so string quartet in so-and-so space at this year is kind of similar to my memory uh, two years ago of a <laughs> string quartet I heard in a completely different space playing a different string quartet entirely, but it's kind of the same thing. Look, stop me if I get unhinged, okay? I, I'm not going to stop you because I'm entertained <laughs> as hell right now. Um, so I tell people all the time because, you know, I have a bunch of instruments in my in my, my den where I have, you know, I have people over for jam sessions and stuff. And so I own a drum kit and cymbals and things like that. And cymbals are really hard to reproduce. A lot of, especially headphones, get them wildly wrong. They make them way too bright or they make them too dull or whoever. And so I always tell people, go to Guitar Center and borrow a stick from them and just tap on a few cymbals there. There's a ton of cymbals. And you can hear the giant range of sound within cymbals, but you also get an idea of what they really sound like. And then you can kind of translate that a little bit. It helps. And certainly in acoustic guitars are the same way. Go hear some mm. acoustic guitars. Not you playing them, somebody else playing them, so that you're actually like where the microphone is. And see what they sound like. Again, there's a mm. wide range of them. But you have some kind of a rough idea. I mean, the sort of twangy, super, super edgy sound that you hear on some acoustic guitar recordings through some speakers, you can go is not on the instrument. That's just not what they sound like. 
Yeah. Have I? Can I stop ranting and you take over for a while? <laughs> well, I, you know, I did something that has come to mind uh, that I didn't think to discuss before is I, I look, I, I, I don't want to in any way be seen as as denigrating Harry Pearson. He's a legend in our industry. Yeah. I disagree with a lot of his philosophy, but but the one thing that the one lasting effect that I think he has had more so than any other is I think he almost single handedly defined what is today perceived to be proper audiophile music. You know, oh, you need to be listening to blah, 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 piano concerto, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I'm like, I bet I don't know. I don't know what that should sound like. <laughs> like, like, you know, no, I know what, you know, Almer Brothers Band, Brothers and Sisters should sound like. I, I know what, uh, you know, Grateful Dead live recording should sound like. I don't actually enjoy chamber music, so I don't listen to a ton of it on a bunch of different gears. So I don't, I have no basis for comparison and yeah, I kind of think that's putting the cart before the horse. I think there's this thing where once you become really embedded in this hobby, you are supposed to develop this taste in music that follows Harry Pearson from 50 years ago. And to me, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. I listen to what I enjoy, you know, That's and I want it to big, sound as good as it can. Yeah. Look, yeah. Classical music is recorded typically pretty well. It's recorded with, you know, maybe a stereo microphone pair and a few other microphones typically in it, typically in a real you know performance space, a small, but it could be a small hall. It could be Carnegie Hall. It could be all sorts of different halls and they all sound different. But even if you take all of that combined, classical music is 1% of record sales or, or 1% of the you know music industry. And so the vast majority of what people are listening to is not classical music. And I don't think that, say, a string quartet is going to tell you a whole lot about vocal reproduction. It doesn't hurt. It's good to listen to that. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the Harmon guys actually researched this and found that things like... Uh, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car and uh, Jennifer Warren's is, uh, uh, Bird on a Wire are the best things that, that give the most consistent and repeatable and in-depth sort of results. And that's what I, you know, I tend to use a lot of stuff like that in addition to string quartets, in addition to hip-hop or whatever, because I don't know what my readers are going to be listening to. So yeah. I think that the whole notion is sort of pretending, and maybe in 1973 or whatever that was, you could say, well, I mean, classical was still like a really big deal. And like, if you look at the old stereo reviews from back then, there was a big focus on classical. But, and you know, the, the sophisticated listeners that listened to FM radio back then <laughs> listened to classical because <laughs> there wasn't a pop on FM back then. I can, I'm old enough to remember that. And so I can see his point then just to, to a large extent. I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, sophisticated listeners were going to listen to classical and things like that. And a lot of the rock recordings were fairly execrable at the time but that's not the case now and classical music is a small part of the of the music world and most people are not going to be listening to that and jazz is not recorded that way by the way jazz is not performed that way um i can think of the the acoustical jazz fully acoustical jazz performances i've seen i i could probably count on one hand and um i do remember um I saw at Caravan of Dreams in Fort Worth, I saw Stan Getz perform in the 80s, uh, and Rufus Reed was on bass. And for the last tune, they actually turned off the PA, and they just performed acoustically, which was really cool, but it didn't sound like what we think jazz sounds like. <laughs> you could barely hear the double bass. 
Yeah. So, but you know, tying that back to what we were saying, I think a lot of people in our hobby pretend to enjoy music that they don't really enjoy. And I think you can tie a lot of that back to Harry Pearson. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good point of contention. I'm not going to take a stand on that. Um, rare case where I don't have an opinion, <laughs> but anyway, let's move on to the next segment, shall we? So let's take a little break right now. Let's do it. Yeah. We'll see you on the other side. I'm here with Brent Butterworth. And I'm here with Dennis Berger. Now we're going to dig into an article from Audioholics from our friend Jerry Del Caliano called How Art Can Teach the Stagnant World of Audio a Lesson About the Future. So what did Jerry have to say about this concept? And we should say who Jerry is. Jerry is, let me just say, Jerry is a uh, guy who's been in, uh, involved in, he's not really involved in audio publishing. He's writing for Audioholics.com now, but... He used to run the, he started the uh, Audio Video Revolution website, and then he started the Home Theater Review website, which we both worked for. Yeah. So the article, hmm, it's kind of hard to wrap my brain completely around it, but, but basically what he does is start with a discussion of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and what's going on in the art world right now with artists selling their art digitally to people with these NFTs. And he's trying to find basically some relevance in that to the world of audio, um, high fidelity audio reproduction. Because I, I you know, mm -hmm. I think we would both agree <laughs> it is not um, not necessarily as popular a hobby as it once was. Audio, um, not hmm? art, not art. <laughs> yes, okay. I mean, audio. I mean, I mean high fidelity audio. Yeah, yeah. So, so, he, so he's talking about the the NFTs, and he's talking about how basically. You know what it boils down to is I think I think Jerry is saying, hey, people are talking about art because of NFTs and what can we do to to make the same thing happen for audio? That seems to me to be where he's going with it. Um, well, I, I think I'm looking at the article now and I think he's talking about, uh, you know, audio, he's comparing, you know, audiophiles spending 30000 on a pair of speaker cables to someone spending several thousand on an NFT that's just a digital something or another that kind of sort of represents something you, you'd probably have to... It's just, it's it's so bizarre and and, and uh, almost nonsensical. I, I think I have to disagree that, like, yeah, if you spend 30,000 on a pair of speaker cables, you're getting a pair of speaker cables, at least, and you're getting a <laughs> pair of speaker cables that cost... You know, the $30,000 pair of speaker cables, you can argue about whether or not they make a difference in sound, but they definitely did not cost, you know, $50 to make. All right? Right. They cost yeah. a lot. A lot of times they have custom plugs, they have custom parts, they have custom wound cables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, the, the, you know, so the, the, the production cost on these is not nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the marketing cost is high. And so... Yeah, you're getting something. Whereas with an NFT, I'm really it's it's sort of vaporwareish to me, and you're not. I'm not sure that you're. So I think I think maybe he's a little off on that. I'm sure he could explain it 
uh, at length. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we should have him on a future episode of the podcast to explain. But but yeah, I mean, look, here's my basic understanding of NFTs. And someone can write in and tell me I'm wrong. But basically, the best analogy that I've heard is, you know, imagine you've got the Mona Lisa and, and you put a price tag on the Mona Lisa. Buying an NFT is like buying the price tag. Right. You don't own the painting, but you own the price tag, (laughs) you know, and I mean, you're basically owning sort of bragging rights to a piece of digital content that could be easily copied and distributed. But you can say, no, I own it and I can do whatever I want with it, which I guess is analogous to cables in that it's you're when you're buying $30,000 cables, you're kind of buying bragging rights, whether whether it's to someone else, you're probably not going to go those cables cost me 30,000 bucks, but maybe it's just to yourself and that counts. Um, Maybe. But further on in the article, he goes into sort of uh, uh, ranting a little bit about uh, sort of old old style gear, uh, vintage style gear, things like you know non oversampling digital to analog converters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's got something of a point. You and I have ranted about, not ranted, we've complained about people promoting you know really outdated audio technologies that don't work all that well as somehow superior to today's audio technologies and and in almost every case that reflects ignorance on the part of the person making the claim yeah rather than any serious investigation on the part of that person although i i think honestly there are exceptions i mean would i would, would i prefer a dynaco stereo 70 amp tube amp and a pair of uh you know bbc ls35a monitors either the old original ones or one of the new recreations would i prefer that to you know, uh, a set of uh, nice, perfect Rebel speakers with a nice parasound amp or something. Well, you know, kind of. <laughs> Would it sound yeah. better? No. Would I dig it more? Yeah, I might. You know, yeah. nothing wrong with yeah. that. It's and it's not like those speakers are bad. I mean, they don't. They're BBC. They're designed by the BBC. They don't color the sound. They do color the sound, but they don't color the sound in a horrible way. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I think I think he's got some points here, um, but you know, people, you know, you can go to Audioholics and read the article. Yeah, I think the best point that he is making is that we do need to embrace new technologies, and uh, you've already underlined all of the yeah. reasons why. But yeah, I think when you get right down to it, there is a sort of old boys club mentality about our hobby. That mm, yeah, I mean, well, for all the reasons we've discussed, is. I think scaring people off. So, oh, I think so. But you know, some of that ties into the vintage thing, and that you know, a lot of people, as my friend Gordon uh, Soak said, you know, the guy who runs a, a innovative audio up in Vancouver, a big vintage audio store, said a lot of people want to own gear that is either what they owned when they were a kid or like what they owned when they were a kid. Mm, yeah. And they get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And you know, who am I to say that, you know, if your dad had some old, you know, pioneer, those wacky pioneer speakers with the white woofers and stuff. Um, oh, yeah. You know, who, yeah. who am I? If you want a pair of, I mean, those are bad speakers. <laughs> really yeah. bad speakers. That was made before they knew how to make speakers. And you just look at the at the baffle layout with the drivers on it. You're like, here's why acoustically that doesn't work. 
But back then they didn't know. They were shoving drivers in there and hoping it sounded good. And mm-hmm. but you know what? A, music is about emotion, Dennis. Did you know this? And I did. I'm told this by many audiophile dudes. And music is about emotion, and it's the combined emotion of listening to the music and what your audio gear is. So if you're listening to music on audio gear that's reminiscent of the stuff that your dad had, maybe, or maybe your first system when you were a kid, that's a positive emotional reaction. And you can put on whatever music you want, which I would hope also inspires a positive emotional reaction. And, and it's a good thing. You have a positive emotional reaction and that's why people are into this stuff in the first place. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. You talk about the pioneer speakers with the big white woofers. I, I, I had, <laughs> I had a system with those, um, for a while that was, uh, loaned to me when I was a teenager. But the funny thing is you were talking about, you know, the, the memories and the nostalgia. I remember that system was probably my first experience with a really, really big, chunky inertial volume knob. And that was a revelation for me. And I think to this day, that's why I love gear with big, beefy volume knobs. I rarely use remote controls in my stereo setup because I like touching the gear and I like interacting with it. I love like just, just scooching the volume knob just a little. And I think all of that uh, goes back to, you know, my formative yeah, so days. Th- there's, so. nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't know if Jerry would agree or disagree Um, Well, I'll tell you what, how about if we take a break here and we'll go on to topic number three? Okay, let's do it. Okay, we're back. This is a Soundstage Audiophile podcast with Dennis Berger and Brent Butterworth. And so we are going to finish up by talking about a really, really, uh, I think, provocative uh, YouTube video that was done by Danny Ritchie, who is the, I guess he's the principal of GR Research. Mm -hmm. And if you're into audio, I don't care if you're into an audiophile, I don't care if you're into pro audio, maybe even car audio, I don't know. You should go check out the GR Research YouTube channel because Danny is a an actual speaker designer, and he gets really deep into speakers. And speakers are what really matters. Speakers are going to really dictate the sound of your system. And he goes into you know he'll do teardowns of very well known speakers and show you what's wrong with them and where they either cheaped out on the design or screwed up the design. And that is key to under to being an expert on audio is understanding how speakers work. So and he sometimes improves them. I've seen him improve speakers. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. he'll show you how to do it, and you know, for nothing. And so, uh, so Danny has this uh, YouTube video that is called "Calling Out the Reviewers" with an exclamation point. So, what did he say in this? video yeah <laughs> well for the most part i think he's sort of destroying the 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 the, the print model of of um or trying to at least or or print. maybe we print should is, say print is when you put like ink on paper <laughs> well i think it would also extend to websites as well but he's calling oh, okay. out magazines and websites because he kind of well he says we're all corrupt <laughs> I mean, not oh, to good. put too fine a point on it he's good basically he's basically saying did that, i ever say i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> that's true so he's basically saying that you know um 
I, I think he's saying the reason I don't send my products out for review well, there's, it's a two-part reason. One, because then the magazine would want him to advertise, and if he didn't advertise, they wouldn't review it. And also, he claims that, um, you know, he thinks that YouTube reviewers are way more innocent and wholesome and not corrupt at all, but they're just not ready. They can't really hear the differences uh, in his speaker designs. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think the issue of corruption is... I don't know. That's the one that's out to be the most, you know, um, well, I think I think he misses an opportunity here. And as as I kind of uh, suggested, reviewers, by and large, don't understand how speakers work. And that's the most important thing in audio, unless you're listening to headphones. And he really could have dug in and said, hey, look, here's here's this speaker. I mean, you can you can look at issues of stereophile and you can see. John Atkinson's measurements, and he will call it out and say, hey, you know what? This speaker's got a lot of problems. And sometimes he'll say, I don't know why the writer didn't hear him. And the writer will go, oh, my gosh, this is highly recommended. It's fantastic. And it's got, like, these colossal flaws in it. So he could have made a much better case, I think, than he did. But speaking as someone who has probably worked for, I don't know, six or seven or eight uh, audio or audio-related publications – and also done marketing consulting, you know, marketing writing and consulting for, oh, I'm sure, 15 different audio companies, and who also worked as a marketing director for Dolby Labs and who bought ads. Uh, I think I can speak to this subject with as much authority as probably anyone on the planet, since I've been in all those different worlds. And I can tell you that he is sometimes, he's right in some cases and wrong in some cases. Now, I, there are, from having worked with manufacturers and having helped them plan their evil scheme of getting a, a good review for their product, um, I can tell you that there are publications, um, and, and by publications I mean print publications, websites, uh, YouTube reviewers, etc., where there is a definite demand that you pay to play. In other words, they will say, I am going to charge you this much if you want to get a review. Mm -hmm. And I would prefer for legal reasons not to name any names because I can't document any of this stuff. But there are quite a few of them are like that or like that. Some of them are really upfront about it. And some of them are kind of honest about it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and some of them don't guarantee you a good review. Now, some of them will, will tell you like, okay, you're going to get a review. And they don't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be good. But look at some of these high-end audio publications, okay? Um, how many bad reviews are there in these publications? Um, you know, if you look at, actually, uh, Jeff Fritz, our editor-in-chief, in the latest edition of Soundstage Ultra edition, you know, the, the web, it's a website. So, you know, whatever you call that, the latest <laughs> on, on it right now, he's got a column that talks about how most of the reviews, it's like, hey, you know, reviewer was interested in a product. He asked for the product. They sent it to him. He listened to it. And it's really good. Mm -hmm. You know, cut and paste. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and and Danny Ritchie kind of suggests the same thing in his thing. Mm -hmm. So there's that problem is that you can, there's a lot of publications. Like, you don't see any negative reviews in those publications. So you assume they're going to give you a nice review, right? Yeah. Um However, I'm going to tell you right up front that uh, I worked with a lot of, uh, I've worked for a lot of magazines, and I've seen that in some of them there is, 
I've never worked for one where there was really hardcore pressure to deliver a good review for some advertiser. Ooh, I have, ooh, ooh. Can I can I can I chime in here? Because yeah, I have, sure. Why don't you again, chime in? Go I don't want to. I don't want to name names again. Okay. Because I, I don't want to. I'm going to start wanna... naming names. By the way, <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not, but I'm not just... naming names. But go ahead. Uh, yeah, I had a I had a publisher come to me over a decade ago and and say, "Hey, here's this product. I need you to give me a really good review of this product." And I took that at face value and I busted my butt. It was one of the most thorough evaluations I've ever done. And I found some flaws. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there was a new room correction uh, system in it. It was really, really awful. Um, but I dotted all of my I's and I crossed all of my T's and I ended up with a review that was very, very, you know, maybe 60, 40, 60% good things I liked about it. 40%. Hey, there's some issues. And I turned it in and the publisher came to me and said, we had a misunderstanding. I told you that I needed a good review. And I was like, this is one of the best reviews I've ever written. Like I really, really put my heart and soul into this. And he was like, no, you don't understand. Like I needed a positive review. We're trying to get them as an advertiser. And I quit the next day. So, wow. um, yeah, but that's, I have to say though, that's really rare, man. I, you know, most of the publications that I've written for have really, really high ethical standards. Now I will say this, and I'm not trying to, you know, toot anybody's horn here. Very few publications I've ever written for have ethical standards as high as soundstage do, but most of them have had very, very high ethical standards. So, yeah. Now I have to say, okay, soundstage, I will say. Uh, I will confess their ethical standards are actually even higher than mine. Because mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm willing to like cover, it's like somebody's advertising. Okay, well, let's cover them. I mean, if they're not, if you're not going to cover the advertiser, well, then why are they advertising in your publication? If they're advertising in your publication, they're probably relevant to what your readers are doing anyway. So yeah. I don't have a problem with that, but they've never, I mean, they have a couple brands that they, that, uh, uh, Doug, our, our founder and Jeff, our, our, uh, editor in chief, they have a couple brands they like. They might, they might ask me about once in a while just because they are really into those brands. And they, oh, it's yeah. like, if somebody has a new, if there's a new set of Focal headphones, they both really like Focal. So they might go like, yeah. Hey, they try those, but that's because they're Focal fans, not because Focal said advertise, but yeah, they, you know, I'm also going to I'm going to call out Stereophile because I have to say I've worked with manufacturers who've who've had products reviewed in Stereophile, and there were some that uh, that you know kind of felt like you know if I advertise with them at least I'll be on their radar and you know it's kind of a goodwill thing but there was never any coverage offered for advertising that I was that, that I ever heard about and I work with a lot of people mm -hmm. and also you know their big frustration was like well I send them it takes me a year to get a review in there so <laughs> it's yeah. like kind of it's not that useful to me because they take so long to do it because they go they have a really thorough process that involves measurements which means you got to ship gear around to different people and go through all this stuff and you know when I see people criticizing some of these magazines and just lumping them all together that is wrong to say that yeah. some of them are corrupt yes that is correct there is one publication that I resigned from just because when I found out that the owner of it was selling my reviews, basically, mm -hmm. 
and I was getting paid something like 5,000 bucks a review. Not, no, no, 500 bucks a review, right? Which is, you know. I was about to say. Yeah. No, 5,000. Where do I get that? <laughs> but I was getting like 500 bucks for a review or something like that. And, you know, hey, fine. He was selling them for 8,000 bucks. And it was not like he was saying, hey, if you advertise with us, you, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you get a couple of reviews, which yeah, I wouldn't care. But he was saying, you want these reviews, you have to spend this much, and it will cost you this much for these reviews. And I quit. Yeah. He copied, and he, I didn't find this out, you know, surreptitiously. He copied me on an email to a manufacturer, and I quit instantly because I'm just mm -hmm. like, I'm not allowing my reviews to be sold. That reflects really poorly on me. Life's too short to deal with that kind of nonsense. So, uh, but you know, I don't have kids, and I don't have all I got is a dog. And, uh, you know, I don't have an expensive house payment. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a little jaded, but. You know, one of the things though, that Danny talks about in his, in his calling out the reviewers video is the issue of reviewers selling gear. And I thought that was hilarious because yeah, man, I, I, I feel like I spend an inordinate amount of time begging manufacturers to take gear back from me like please send me a call tag <laughs> please yeah. please take this amplifier out of my house um you know i yeah, mean I'm, look I'm, there there is there is gear around i like i'm looking at my two channel system right now and none of the gear in it did i purchase i have to be honest with you but the thing is like so much gear ends up just never going back to the manufacturer why wouldn't I use it? And and the other thing is, like, I can never sell it because it's not mine. I don't own it. It's just sort of, yeah. I'm its caretaker for a while. Um, so I have, I mean, right now in my, my dining room, I have, which hasn't been dined in in a long time, I have uh, 10 boxes of speakers that have to go back that I'm waiting for call tags on. Um I write for Wirecutter, and of course, Wirecutter, you just review a colossal pile of gear. So it's, I have a lot more than most people do. And I probably have, oh, 10 or so, you know, Bluetooth speakers sitting here. And then I have uh, another 10 sets of headphones for soundstage. So I got piles of this stuff. I don't want any of it. Um, I will say, I have, um, I knew a, a really old school reviewer way back in the day, and I don't know if he's even still alive. And he actually wrote for a newspaper rather than a an audio site. But I think he wrote some for audio publications. I know he wrote some for audio publications as well, but he was notorious for, for you know, basically selling review samples. So yeah. I know it does happen. And there was another uh, writer who I employed for a while. And I later found out after I, I did not terminate him, uh, he quit before I was able to. Um, but I tried. But anyway, uh, I later found out from my other employees that he was uh, he was selling his samples. He was selling the review samples. So, wow. um, yeah, so it does happen. Uh, and in it fact, does happen. I, I, yeah, I will not confess, I have, I have sold two review samples in my life. They were both from both amplifiers and they were both things that I had had on loan from the manufacturer and they'd gone out of business. And I'd had the thing sitting around for like two, three years after that. And I'm kind of like, I guess I could sell it. And then I, <laughs> but, but, I, but, I, but I used the money to buy more gear. I made a point of yeah. using the money to buy myself usually lab gear 
I can see it when the when the company goes out of business. But uh, you know, I have had well, manufacturers. I've had manufacturers contact me before and be like, "Hey, do you still have that amp?" And it's six years after I did the review, and I'm like, "Yeah, of course I still have the amp." Like <laughs> they're yeah. like, "We want that back." I'm like, yeah, oh, finally, finally. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know I, what? I got one now that's busted, and I. God, I've had it for like 10 years, and I guess I could contact the company. I, maybe I sold the box or not, but they don't want it back. I, I don't know what to do with it. I guess I could give it to somebody to fix or throw away. I don't need it. Yeah. Uh, but it's just sort of, this stuff just clogs your house up. And I always tell people the best way to bribe me is to put a, a prepaid return shipping label in with the product. <laughs> because then I, that's the, because, you know, they can't, I mean, I, I work for Wirecutter, so I can't, Wirecutter never doesn't let you keep any review samples at no. all, no. Uh, except for the ones you're going to use on an ongoing basis to compare to other things. Right. And so everything has to go back. And, uh, yeah. You know, one of the other things that Danny talks about in his video is he, like I said, he seems to think that, that YouTube gear reviewers are, are not prone to corruption. Although I think I, I know of at least one who is is pretty well known for turning around and selling gear, but but he says that he won't send his gear, his speakers to YouTubers to review because they're not ready yet. You know, they don't know but what to listen for, and their systems are not good or their systems aren't good enough. They don't have the right acoustical treatments because because he can see their room, you know, when he's watching them on YouTube and. I don't know, man. It's just like that gatekeeping bullcrap is, it, it goes right back to what I said before about, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's making it seem like the, this hobby of ours is for a special select few, you know, who have, who have, you know, gone through the wizard training and have earned their hat and what have you. And it just, it really bothers me. So. Well, and plus, I mean, like, look at the YouTubers. I mean, look at, you know, Steve Guttenberg. I mean, he's got, yeah. Granted, Steve and I don't always agree about audio, but you know he's always had rooms that were that were pretty well set up, and I've listened to I listened a lot in his old space, mm -hmm. and a lot over over a couple decades, I guess. And his systems always sounded pretty good, and acoustically the rooms were not bad. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you know, pretty good. And uh, I mean, look at at uh, a newer guy. I mean, Joe Mariano. I mean, he's really like into it, and he does a really good job. And you know, I think that you know he's doing some measurements, and he's really kind of digging in and trying to to uh, to to be like a serious evaluation guy. And I'm starting to refer people to his reviews and stuff. And you know, to to generalize and say YouTubers are this, YouTubers are that is just wrong. Because by the way. I know there's another YouTuber and his name is Danny Ritchie. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, who it looks like he it looks to me like the guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, so, well, except except with the issue of power cords, I think I might have disagreements with. Well, let's, that, uh, well let's push this way. He on speakers. He's about as good as it's going to get. God, so. yeah, I've learned so much from his channel, and and we should say, yeah, we're 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 beating him up a little bit here, but man, if you guys aren't aren't uh, subscribed to the GR Research channel, you should subscribe today because you will learn more about speaker design than you ever thought there was to know. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: if you really want to learn a lot about speakers, you could Google my name and speakers, and probably through a lot of work 
assemble enough articles to tell you what you need to know. Or you can read the Loudspeaker Design Cookbook by Vance Dickerson, Ooh, yeah. um, which is very technical and it's pretty heavy lifting. Uh, or you can page through John Atkinson's Measurements in Stereophile, where he meticulously explains everything and how the measurements correlate to the speaker design and everything. Um, but you'll have to go back through two or three years worth of stereophiles and read those measurement sections. They're all on the, online. You can do that. Or you can just go to Danny's channel and watch a few of those. You're probably going to learn the whole thing in, the, in a matter of a couple of hours. <laughs> He's he, one he, of the... He really He's one of the few channels it. that I have that I've I have rung the bell on his channel. Uh, I don't know if people know what that means, but like when you ring the bell on a channel, that means you get notifications when they post a new video. And it's like the oh. instant the instant he posts something, I want to know about it because most of his videos are fascinating. Yeah, so highly recommended. I don't I I, I disagree with him on some of these things, and frankly, I have much better standing to make these statements, but. Uh, you should, yeah, if you're into audio, that, that is extremely high on my list of, of channels you need to be checking out. That might Absolutely. be at the top. Yeah. So I think, I think we've covered some good ground this week, Brent. Good. And some bad ground as well. <laughs> Are we ready to wrap this up? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you, I'm, I'm totally ready. And so you have been listening to the Soundstage Audiophile podcast in genuine, actual living stereo. Yeah. We should do the next episode in sense around. <laughs> we <Yeah>. could. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to do some credits? Yeah. Let's do some credits. You've been listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast with Dennis Berger and Brent Butterworth. We are a production of the Soundstage Network. Gosh, what else are we going to say? Oh, we could talk about the music, which is done by me with my friends Dan Gonda and Ron Seiger. Absolutely. We could talk about the engineering and the editing, which is done by me, Dennis. And the mixing, which I guess will be done by me, except you've probably learned to use Reaper by now, so you probably don't need me anymore. You know, I kind of still need you. you okay. Know, I need you to do the EQ, and I need you to do the compression, so... Okay. Yeah. I just so, put it through presets anyway. <laughs> well, well, hey, you've already got the presets done, so that means you're stuck with the job for the time I being. just use whatever the first preset is in all those plugins. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Boy, we've got standards, don't we? Yeah, so this is going through the death metal preset or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, everybody. Good luck making heads or tails out of that. That was worse than the first one. <laughs>